Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In terms of writing them, I don't think you could write a character if you didn't like them or enjoy writing them because you wouldn't be able to think of anything for them to do. Right. It doesn't mean I admire them. You know, I wouldn't want to be trapped in a lift necessarily with all of them. So I guess that means I do like all of them in a, in a bizarre kind of way. Okay, fair enough. Hello, and welcome to the Ask the Industry podcast, episode 104. I'm comedian Simon Kane, and for those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, and today, TV writing. Doug Naylor is the creator and writer for the TV sitcom Red Dwarf. I nearly said cult then. Um, We got into how the show is being described as a cult and having a cult fan base and if he thought that was a fair label for the show. We also talked about how it was for him bringing back the show after 10 years of being off the air, why he moved channels and so much more. I I loved this. As a fan of the show and as a fan of obviously sitcoms and panel shows and everything like that, I really enjoyed his views on the TV industry and insider knowledge about how stuff gets made as well as advice for writers and I, I just think it's got so much information in here for so many different groups of people like you could just be you're a fan of the show and you want to know more about Doug and how he operates or you could be a budding writer who has an idea for a sitcom and just don't know how to make anything become a tv show and I think everyone in between is going to get something out of this before we dive into the episode I just want to thank Ben Duncan, Ian Coyle and Jem Pinkley and all the friends of the podcast at Dave TV for shorting out the record we did it at their office in a giant boardroom, which means there is a bit of echo. I have tried to cut it down as much as I can. I'm sorry, I would rather have it out and have it slightly echoey than have it not out. So I just want to acknowledge that up top. I am aware there's echo, don't tweet me and tell me. But it is audible and I think really informative, so it's going out. If you're new here, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button. If you're old here, please do consider giving us an honest, ideally positive review in iTunes. And either way, do remember to join the Facebook group. It's the best place to have your questions asked direct to the guest. I always put a post up so that you're able to ask the guests what you want to know ahead of the episode's recording. Got some fabulous guests lined up, so if you want to have your say, please do. It's called RC Industry Podcast, and it's on Facebook, obviously. But for now, this is Doug Naylor. Okay, fine. Um, 
so I was going to ask you, so that what I do is I always do the intro and then I cut to your answer for the first question. Okay. So if you could incorporate the first question in your answer, okay. that would be great. Um, so the first question was going to be, I saw an interview with you where you were talking to, I'm, I'm going to say Crichton, but obviously uh, here's a real name, um, Robert, uh, about uh, the realism in the show and you were looking into fuel uh, for the ship. I don't know if you remember that interview. Oh my God, yeah, keep going. Yeah. I, I was right, wondering... No, go on. Yeah, rum scoop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was wondering how important realism is for you in the show and whether you think it makes it more believable, but, you know, like allows people to get more into the world of Red Dwarf. Right. So how realistic is Red Dwarf and how important is realism? I think the truth is there is, you have to have a a degree of suspension of disbelief because a lot of the stories are quite incredible but then equally you've got to believe in enough of it for it to logically make sense so there is peripheral stuff like how the ship is able to travel for three million years into deep space uh, and we did research on that and discovered that there is a type of spaceship or theoretically there's a type of spaceship called a ram scoop which collects hydrogen um, from space and then that's able to fuel itself and so it can go for limitless distances. So that bit is, that's, you know, at the time, 1984, uh, when we were writing it, that's, that was, you know, good science. Um, hologram, again, uh, I think we were, if not the first, one of the first along with Star Trek to have a hologram um, generated character. Again, in terms of science, um, quite realistic um, but then you go you get miniaturized starbug and fly up a rat's bum maybe not quite well you never know uh, not quite so realistic so th- there are levels uh, and you're dictated you, you want to try and sell the story as best you can um, but obviously it's it's a rule that's a bit bendy but, but by that point, so by the point a star bug is going up a rat's bum, yeah. you'd assume that the audience, because that's not the start of the episode, you would assume that by that point they're invested in the world. Well, yeah, actually it was very close to the start of an episode in that, uh, here we are, we, we're returning to Red Dwarf after an adventure. Oh, it looks like we've been miniaturised. Oh, we're flying down uh, an air shaft. Oh, my God, look out, there's a rat. Uh, oh, we haven't avoided it. We're now propelling the rat down the the air vent Mm. Um, and so if you 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 were given the information in stages um, and if you bought each piece of information um, and and forgave um, um, CG in its early years (laughs) uh, you might have thought that was credible yeah, because in, in uh, stand-up, a yeah. lot of people try and say, oh, it's funny because it's true, or, or funny because it's yes. factual. Yes. But a lot of people, uh, especially people that don't perform, don't realise that the reason it's funny is because you've hyperbolied something that is you can invest into. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. But the audience have got to believe it, it even in, uh, you know, or else they'll drift off and go, this is just bollocks. Um, I'm sure we've achieved that many times but when when it's working, when it's good yeah, you've got to believe in it no matter how ludicrous again, polymorph you know, logically you were fed that information in stages which is there is this creature that can turn into things Uh, Crichton does have 
uh, a vacuum cleaner which he plugs into his groinal socket. Um, now this creature which is able to morph into different things has turned into a pair of underpants. Lister's accidentally put them on. Uh, he's pleading with, with Crichton to, to rip off his underpants uh, and his uh, huge long uh, vacuum cleaner hose is um, hanging uh, by the side of him as Rimmer comes in and witnesses the scene. So you're given all that information, but you have got, so it looks, you know, like he's there having sex, obviously, but, but because you've been given that information in chunks and you've bought it at each stage, you then have a scene that uh, hopefully you, you think is funny and you buy, you know, the payoff. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And in, in, even in the 10 years when you were off, there was a, a massive leap in technology that would mean that now would you handle something differently to keep the realism or would you just stick with it being as real as it needs to be to keep it funny? There was a reference to that where we said that DVDs went out of fashion and VHSs came back because basically people uh, never put the DVDs back in the cases and so they always got lost whereas VHSs were much bigger and so didn't get lost. So occasionally we've done that kind of retro reference uh, to make our world... Um, realistic uh, and if you look at any of the keyboards in Red Wolf they're, they're all incredibly sort of 1970s uh, and we've kept that that all spaceships have these retro keyboards for some reason because they're cheaper and able to you know we're able to buy, uh, afford them for the set but equally the show does move forward you know we're doing shows in the last couple of series that have come out very much out of the world now one show, MCOR, where um, certain objects are invisible unless they're made by a particular uh, corporation. You know, that's that's obviously right out of our world there. Yeah, because there's always a point where, in a, especially in a science fiction show, mm. that you could go off and be like, right, because uh, Black Mirror does it a lot at the moment, where they go, right, what could... Uh, what could just be technology it doesn't have to exist now it could just be an expansion of whatever and when you do that it can either go the dark way of Black Mirror or it can go the funny way of of Red Dwarf and there's an element of it where technology's gone so far since you first started that I wondered whether that as especially like especially TV technology so for example you know on demand players and people watching on their phone and I wonder whether that has impacted your writing process throughout the especially the most recent series those those small things, no, I don't think so. I'm, or, or if they are, I'm not aware of it. I mean, when you look at the original Star Trek series, where they have the, basically the equivalent of a mobile phone, you know, why didn't they have a mobile phone? Mobile phones hadn't been invented, but that's basically what they've got, what they carry around and, and, and contact one another when the you know the, the team's on uh, on a planet. Um, but in terms of those small things. We've used walkie-talkies, or we've 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 tried to be as backward as possible um, because it's a mining ship, and because um, and one of my favourite jokes uh, on Red Wolf is um, uh, they need to go to Red Alert, and and Crichton says he absolutely sure so because he does mean changing the bulb, <laughs> and I just love that joke because it encapsulates the whole world, which is we haven't got you know a great spaceship we even have to change the bulb to go to red alert Uh, and the whole thing is kind of um, amateurish and shambolic and the opposite of 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 most science fiction in space shows i'm gonna think how to segue to this bit because that's not how i thought you could answer that Ah. um 
it's, it's, I what, completely agree. What was the right answer? Well, it wasn't, there's no right or wrong answer <laughs> yeah. in this. It's how you perceive yeah, the sure. show. And I was, I was hoping it would go into a different area where we could talk about it being a cult show and what it's like being known for a cult show. Right. Because obviously th- there's different levels of success when it comes to TV programs. Different levels of success for everything, yeah. but in particular TV shows. I suppose you didn't think of it becoming a cult show when you first started writing it. No, if, you, if, if someone had said to me it would be a cult show, I'd have been, oh my God, I'm so disappointed. I thought it was going to be a hit. <laughs> so I, I wasn't, no, I'd have been, we'd have been so disappointed. How do you see the word cult then? Do you see that? Well, as? it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing, cult. Um, is Match of the Day a cult show? I, I, I don't think anyone would ever argue it was a cult show. Yeah. And yet the viewing figures we got, you know, far outweighed much of the day when we were on BBC Two. Um, so, and then you look at Star Trek. Is Star Trek, was that Star Trek ever a cult show? I mean, I think it, it depends on whether you're a fan of the thing or whether you're not a fan of the thing. I mean, when we were on BBC Two, the last series we did was 8 million, which is the biggest... Uh, rated show for any comedy show on BBC Two. When we came across the UK TV, biggest rated show for any show at the time on UK TV. So is this because we're a cult or is this because we're a hit? Mm. We sold more videos and DVDs than any show. Uh, I think we, sorry, apart from Fools and Horses, we're just a tiny bit behind Fools and Horses. Um, So but Fools and Horses, no one describes Fools and Horses as a hit show. I mean, sorry, a it's a cult show. show. It's, it, so I, it's, I think it's difficult to... I mean, you can argue it both ways, I guess, but I would argue it's a, it's a hit show. <laughs> <laughs> but does the terminology ever... Because I'm assuming it means you're... And I don't mean... Because most actors who maybe do sci-fi get typecast as sci-fi characters. Yes. Or, or some people have a certain look, which means they're always the police officer or the... Woman. Yes. Does this mean that you're... Because before you sort of made it with this show, you were doing a lot of sketches for lots of other different shows. Yeah. Did it ever mean that you were limited after that as to who would go, oh, you will get him on to write for us? I did meet a director, actually, who said, oh, the next show you, you do has got to be a science fiction show with sort of like four people in it. And I went, why is that? And he said, because you're the, the, the guy who does the science fiction shows with kind of four or five people in it. And I went, yeah, but I can do something else. He said, yeah, but no, <laughs> no one will accept you. If you, if you do something else, trust me. Um, so, and I thought, oh, that's really quite interesting because it's, do you get labelled like that? And I guess, I don't know whether you do or whether you don't. Certainly the cast haven't. I mean, Craig has done so many different things. And indeed, Danny too now. So, uh, um, you know, just acting-wise uh, and, and TV-wise, Robert's branched out in all sorts of different ways. So... I don't know. I don't know really what the, the good answer to that is. Yeah, because I suppose you'd never know whether they'd sort of overlooked you because they wouldn't have mentioned y- Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I think the last time anyone ever called me and offered me work, wow, I suppose it was, um, do you want Red Dwarf, uh, the, the, the Red Dwarf cast to introduce some old clips? on UK TV. Like Vox Pox, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, because that's how it, we started out. They wanted us to get the cast in, 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 in costume and then introduce, remember this hilarious scene from Polymorph? Oh, yes, sir, I remember that scene, blah, blah, blah. And, and then I made the point, well, hang on, if you're doing that, why don't you just make some more shows? But sorry, that wasn't really an offer. 
And yeah. It was sort of, we're kind of going to do this. It wasn't like, oh, will you even direct it or supervise it? So for the most part, and it, no, no, no one calls, no one writes. <laughs> I, I go out and I get the work if, if, if it happens. So when you first when when you first started making the, the episodes, well, let's yeah. do it this way: when you first wrote like a pilot script for a dwarf, yes. How long did it take for you to get that either seen by people or even commissioned? Ah, oh, well, we got it seen by people very very quickly because we worked with Paul Jackson on. It was called Carrot's Lib at the time. It was, it was a live Jasper Carrot show on Saturday nights on BBC One. And we'd also... Um, so they kind of trusted you with scripts? So, so, yeah, and we'd also work with John Lloyd on Spitting Image. We'd been headhunted after they'd approached pretty well every writer in the country and the show wasn't working fabulously. And uh, they invited us to change the format and do what we wanted with it. Producer John Blair got, Blair got us on board. And so we'd worked with John for two, three seasons very successfully on Spitting Image. So we sent it to both of them. And they both read it within two, three weeks. John really liked it. Then John, uh, Paul was told John had read it, and there was a rivalry between the two, I think, uh, and he really liked it. So Paul read it immediately. And Paul's reaction was, yeah, this is really good. Although before we'd written it, we'd met him, and the advice he'd given us was, don't write comedy science fiction, you'll never sell it. It's too expensive, they don't like it, you'll never sell it. And we said, but this isn't like Hitchhikers. This is character-rooted science fiction. And we're going to use the tropes of science fiction to illustrate character. And Hitchhikers, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant though it is, is more ideas-based rather than characters-based. And he went, okay. So ours is more like Steptoe and Stun in Space. And so he went, oh, okay, all right, fine. So, but you've got to make it really clear right from the get-go that this isn't, you know, mad science fiction. And we said, we're just on a spaceship and it could be shot in a TV corridor. And he said, actually say that. Say that in your, in your opening stage direction. So, and we did, we did. Uh, so he read it, John read it, they discussed it and they were going to do some amazing co-pro between the two of them. And at the time they were far and away the two most successful producers in the country. And... John dropped away because I think he was doing Blackadder 2 uh, or might even been yeah I think it was 2 and Paul took it to the BBC and it was rejected they said we don't like it, we don't get it and then he took it back to them and said read it again and said we still don't like it, we still don't get it and then I said Can I go in because you're obviously not pitching it right um, and we'll get it so we went in, we saw Gareth Gwendolyn who was the head of comedy at the time and went on to be incredibly successful producer of, um, among other things, Fools and Horses, ironically. <laughs> and he said, I just don't get why science fiction would be a hit. And we went, what about Hitchhikers? And he went, yeah, but the thing about Hitchhikers was it was incredibly expensive. And I'm not sure it's worked as well on television as it did on radio or in the novels. And we went, but ours is going to be different because ours is going to be character-based on a spaceship. And the more we spoke to him, the more we realised he wasn't really au fait with a lot of the science fiction movies at the time, Terminators and Alien and all that kind of stuff. So he wasn't possibly aware that there was an audience for it. And, you know, it's, you know it's, it was, he didn't like it. Uh, although we continued talking, and, 
and he, we won him over in terms of why science fiction comedy could be a success, and he actually commissioned us uh, to write a script, which ultimately we, we didn't do. You di- well, you didn't do a script? We didn't do a script, no. Uh, okay. We took the money. Right! Took the money, the, or the first half of the money. And I can't remember now why we didn't. Maybe just stuff took over. And then Kevin Ligo, who was a, a jobbing director at the time, he'd worked on some sort of BBC One shows, Russell Harty and uh, a couple of others. He heard it, or, or of it, and read it, and he took it to Channel 4, and Channel 4 said, we really like this, we want to make it into a film on 4. And we said, no, we don't want to do a film on 4, uh, we think it's a sitcom, and that's, that's what we want to do. So they went, okay, fair enough. Had, had you done a film by this point? Or had you done no, we'd actually written a film just before this called The Thursday Man, which never got made. Jeff Goldblum wanted to be in it, and it didn't happen for it. And Steve Martin nearly wanted to be in it at one point, and got a reputation for being one of the, you know, a screenplay that everyone seemed to like but never got made. Uh, the, in fact, we actually wrote it for Walter Matthau, who was a huge, we're a huge fans of Walter Matthau, and he was the one person who read it and went, I really hate it. <laughs> <laughs> but- at least he gave you the honest feedback. Yeah, yeah, he gave yeah. the honest feedback. It so, we were so brokenhearted because we loved him so much. Um, Sorry to so, hear that. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, and then some of the terrible movies he did afterwards, but hey. Um, so, um, can, can I just ask yeah. a question? So I don't interrupt you, but yeah, I just yeah. wanted to know. At this point in your career, mm. how long have you been a writer for? Um, as in professionally, not as, as in professionally. No, sure. Um, we were both at university. Uh, same university, Liverpool. Uh, I read an article in the Daily Express about some guy who'd, I think it was called Paradise Island. It was sort of a rip of Gilligan's Island. And he'd sent the script to ITV. And then it was an article in the, in the morning paper and said, the ITV bosses are really liked and it's on tonight. And I read this and went to the pub with my friends and I went, I had no idea it was so easy to get stuff on TV. You just send it up, and this totally makes sense now. This is why so much TV is absolutely terrible, um, <laughs> because it's just like all this junk is sent up by these people who don't aren't any good, and then they make it. So imagine if you send something up and it's really good, it's, you'll, you'll be away, and everyone went, couldn't couldn't really fault that as a piece of logic. And Rob said, "Oh, I'll give you a hand with it." So I was like, "Yeah, okay." And then that year at university, we wrote um, a script. Um, talk about realism again it was about two private detectives and I think it was probably too incredible if we'd have, <laughs> it wasn't particularly um, insane what happened to it uh, what, but, but I think it, the level was probably too high anyway, sent it to the BBC absolutely convinced that the BBC would, um, would accept it and they sent back a very nice letter saying uh, it's amusing uh, you can clearly write dialogue um, but it's not laughter, uh, laugh out loud funny and isn't quite for us. But we were quite, after the disappointment of, oh, well, actually, we can write quite good dialogue. Two weeks later, we got kicked out of university for not doing any work, basically writing, <laughs> writing this not acceptable sitcom pilot, and then went home to the parents to say good news and bad news. Bad news... <laughs> <laughs> somehow, I don't know how many people are relating to yeah, this right yeah. now? <laughs> somehow, and it's very, very difficult to do this. I accept to get kicked out of the second year at university, because generally, if you're going to get kicked out, you get kicked out of the first year. We've both been kicked out at the same time, along with a third of the of the year. 
But the good news was, I now knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to write a sitcom with Rob. Did at any point in that sort of moment of, of I now know what I want to do, yeah. but I'm at home and all that, yeah. did you ever go, okay, well, I'll reapply and do a writing course? Or was it just... I well, know- actually, the, the, the news then was, if, uh, and I did toy around with the idea of, of going to film school. Right. But the word was, if you went to film school, that was the one thing that guaranteed that you would never have anything to do with film. Because no one who went to film school ever wound up on film. And I don't know where I heard that from, but I sort of believed it. And I thought, oh, okay. Didn't go to film school. And my dad quite rightly said, well, if if you want to be a writer, you need to go out. And one, you need to do some writing, but two, you need to to support yourself. How are you going to support yourself? You know, and I went, well, I'll get a job. And he went, yeah, I bet you don't. <laughs> it's very, very positive. Does your dad know my dad? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, yes, I will. I will have a job by the end of today. And he went, yeah, well, we'll see about that. And lo and behold, I did have a job by the end of the day. It was working um, in, for a computer company, putting paper into computer machines. So I did that, and Rob got a job at the same time, at the same place. And we did that for a year and we were on different shifts most of the time, so we never saw one another. And then there was a key moment, and I think it's quite illustrative of me as a person, although I didn't understand that at the time. And I drove into work one day. We'd, we'd, we'd sent some scripts up to radio, and they'd like them. And they put us in touch with BBC Manchester. But we weren't full-time. I mean, we were working in this place. And they said, come in, and we're doing a, a sketch show for new writers, and maybe you can, you know, do, do some work for that. So I drove into work and into the car park, and there was a, a car park attendant there, and he said, sorry, mate, you can't go in through this way. And I went, oh, right, I work here. I'm, actually, I'm quite late. He said, no, no, this is the executive entrance. You have to go in for the, just the normal people's entrance. <laughs> yeah, and I went, oh, right, I didn't realise that. And, and, and I said, he said, there it is. You can just see it opposite. And it was straight opposite. I went, oh, okay. And he says, so what you need to do, you need to come in, turn around, turn right, go to lights, turn right, go along to the end of the street, turn right again, and then you come in that entrance that you can see right opposite you. I went, okay, it's just I'm a bit late. Is it possible that I could just drive through here and park in that space there? You see that empty one? And, and, but I'll never do this again. He went, no, mate, you're not an executive. You need to turn around and do that. And I went, sorry, I just think that's really stupid. And I can't do that. So he said, well, you've got to. And I said, well, no, I'm not going to do that. And the window was down. And I said, I'm just going to drive there and park there. And he hung on to the the sleeve of my shirt. And 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 he said, I'm not leaving go. And I went, well, I'm going to go a little bit faster. (laughs) And you're going to have to start walking faster. And so he said, well, I will. I went, okay. And I said, now I'm going to go a little bit faster, and now you're going to have to jog. And he said, well, I will. And I said, now you've got a big decision to make. <laughs> and then he let go. And so I then parked and thought, what have I done? This guy is going to kill me either now or later. And then I went home, said to Rob, I said, look, this writing thing's not working. We have got to never go back to that terrible company and, and do it full time and just go for it. Oh, we'll never make it ever. And Rob went, that's a very compelling argument. It was nothing to do. He had no idea about my terror of being beaten up by this guy. So that's what we did. We went full time because we had a little bit of savings. And then fortunately, BBC uh, Manchester took us under their wing. We got, it was a, a bursership thing that they give to new writers 
where we were on, I think, £17 a week each, which was less than the doll. But for parents, it was like, oh, well, actually, maybe they're making progress. So we did that. And through that, we were able to write lots of different radio shows uh, and our own radio shows before, what was the first? Richard Stilgo was doing a show there and he recommended us to a show they were doing up in Scotland called Kick Up the 80s with Tracy Ullman. Um, so we wrote sketches for that. Tracy Ullman recommended us for Three of a Kind. We did Three of a Kind because of Three of a Kind. Paul Jackson got us in for uh, Carrot Slip and then Carrot Slip onto Spitting Image. So you were, So this was the point where you were still living at home or you'd moved to Manchester? No, no. We, as soon as my dad said, get a job, you need to get a job, I moved out as soon as I got my job. Right. Uh, I mean, there, there were times when we literally had no food. Literally no food at all. We, we, you, know, there was, you know, there was beer money and money yeah. for cigs, and then food obviously came, came third. third. Yeah. And we'd actually run out of everything. We'd been down the sofa, there was no loose change, absolutely zip. Uh, and Rob said, look, because when we used to go home, Parents would always say, well, you know, here's some food, take it back with you. And we'd always go, no, 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 we really be doing so well, we don't need it. <laughs> we're BBC writers. Yeah, we're BBC writers, <laughs> we're so bloody successful. We're such. on the BBC yeah, yeah. gravy train. We'd yeah. always go, no, and I said, look, one of us, we had enough bus fare for one of us to get back. <laughs> and Rob's was nearer, so Rob went back and, uh, to get the food. And, and the deal was, when they said, do you want some food, you go, yes, please, and bring back some beans or something. That's, that's what happened. And a friend came round, and the only thing he could find to cook was some oil and flour. So that's the way he cooked me. I was just sitting there going, I'm so hungry, I don't know what to do. <laughs> so that was about as low as it got. Yeah. And so how, how many scripts did you get through? Like, not just of Red Dwarf, but of other ideas until you got to, we're going to just work on Red Dwarf until someone picks it up? We, when we... Uh, were in radio we did a sitcom called Wrinkles for Tom Menard which was two series, 12 shows and then we did another sitcom of 10 shows I think it was for Tony Brandon who made everything sound like it was Tony Hancock um, so we'd done two well what's that 10, 22 shows of stories of sitcoms so blah. then we did various sketch shows and then uh, we did a, another series called Cliché and, and a second series called Son of Cliché, which were very sketches. And within that, there was this sort of mini-series of a guy called Dave Hall in Space Cadet, who was alone on a ship um, going slowly uh, space crazy. And we liked that and said, you know what, why don't we try and develop that? And years before, we'd watched Dark Star and then watched Dark Side was one afternoon, gone to the pub, I remember it so vividly, both standing outside the car, and me saying, you know what, it's really weird that no one's ever done a sitcom like that. And Rob went, yeah, that's weird, isn't it? And we both just got in the car, slammed the doors and drove off. And um, it was only years later we actually picked that up and went, actually, if this dark, bit Dark Star, a bit Dave Hollins, we might have something here. And... When we were in radio, the head of BBC Comedy at the time was called Bobby Jay. He thought we had talent, but he, he didn't quite know what to do with us. <laughs> and he wanted us to be mentored, if you like, over a lunch, and he knew Galton and Simpson. So we went out for lunch with Galton and Simpson. Oh, huge, you know, 
big deal, obviously. Mm. And they were talking about how they created Steptoe and Son. And they said what we did was, we didn't know the characters. We just put two characters who were different together and had them walk down the street. And this reminded us a bit of a sitcom we'd done. That actually was, we never made it, but it was our first thing. And because it didn't have story in it, it was two guys coming back from a double day waiting for a bus. And the whole half hour was that. And so you were able to get lots of backstory, lots of, uh, and work out who the characters were because you didn't have to move the story forward. People read it, and in fact it was actually commissioned by radio as a series. And then we went, we were absolutely thrilled, great. But then we couldn't write show two because we didn't really know the story bit uh, or how to move it forward. So anyway, Galton and Simpson said, we got these two characters walking down the street, uh, and then at one point they were um, two brothers, and then at another point they were two friends, but we just kept writing, kept writing, trying to make them as conflicted as possible, and then decided you know, what the jobs were, and then that they would be father and son. He said, and by the time they'd walked down you know, this imaginary street, we kind of had the relationship. So we thought, oh, okay, right, that's what we'll do. So we've got these two blokes on a spaceship. Instead of walking down the street, they're walking down a corridor. They'll be opposites. Okay. We had a rough idea that maybe all the crew were going to die. And if they were going to die, the people who would take over would be people at the very bottom. So we knew they'd be at the very bottom. And we knew uh, we'd probably have comedy from a slob and a uh, sort of um, guy who, who uh, obeyed the rules. And so we put those together and just wrote them, uh, doing a menial job. And by the time we'd finished that scene, which didn't change massively from the scene that went on TV, we kind of had literary rumour. Okay, uh, two questions out of that. One, did you have an agent at this point, or were you just... Yeah. Okay. We had an agent quite early on because we wrote these sketches in Manchester for an audience, and our stuff always used to get big laughs. And different people would come, different agents and whatever would come. And they saw this and they went, have you got an agent? And we went, what's that? And they went, oh, we'll represent you. And this lady worked for Noel Gay. Uh, It was more the circus side of it because I think she was Bernie Clifton's agent. So she represented us then for a little while and then she left. And then after that, Alex Armitage because uh, we'd done a few shows uh, and we, by then we were working for TV um, represented us Did you, so when you first wrote The Red Dwarf like when you were, when you were sort of sketching that out as, after you'd seen So we wrote the script Yeah and by, Oh yeah, by then we'd been working for Spitting Image for years and so we had agents I mean really top agents yeah. uh, well before then, yeah well, I, No, I was going to ask whether because you were working in radio at the time yeah. and you'd just sort of seen a sitcom and you'd been like, why is that not a sitcom? Yeah, yeah. Did you write it thinking this will be a good radio or did you write it thinking this will... Oh, no. I thought straight okay. TV. Okay. I, th- I, I thought it would be, Literally, I thought there would be a knock on the door and there'd be someone from the BBC going, we've just read why it. Why have we not had yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. Get, get in the car. We're going to take it to White City because... This is funny, and um, <laughs> and, then we, what, and you've like seen TV. We don't we don't really get much of this. Yeah, I mean, it was I was so delusional. Okay, no, no, I I, I don't think that's delus- I think that's I think that's a naivety that a lot of people have early on. Yeah, where I've had that before, where you know you get an email from someone in a powerful position, yes. and you go, oh, "This is my moment. Yeah, this is it. Yes, yeah. yes, 
and and it's it's nice but it's also like you have to sort of remind yourself oh hang on there's actually a process here and this is one barrier that you've got through out of a million that could go wrong the thing is because we went in sort of the back door there were huge benefits to that so the bbc manchester comedy department there are three producers it was Bob Oliver Rogers who was the first guy to take us under his wing. And he was young, 32, 33. And he died of a heart attack within, I think, six months of us meeting him. And then the person who sort of took over from him taking us under our wing was a producer called Mike Craig, who was Mr. Variety, Mr. He was a writer and a producer and made so many different comedy shows. He worked, made the Grumble Meads. He did variety shows with Shirley Bassey and Les Dawson, Eddie Braben, the show with 10 Legs. He did all these shows, Richard Stilgo. And, and he was an enormous influence in that he loved everything we did. And to, to an almost mad degree, you know, where if you- He was your super fan. Yeah, and he just he just genuinely loved it. He he, he made him laugh out loud. Uh, even even the scripts that didn't get made, like even the stuff you were submitting. Yeah, no, everything we every we made everything we we wrote pretty well. Oh, okay. So there was no, so there was, was just series after series and sketch after sketch. So we never got any notes. He just thought everything was great. Oh, that's quite good. And <laughs> and so that's enormously valuable for your self esteem. And of course, it doesn't mean you're not critical. So you're still critical, but. There's no beating yourself up like, oh, I don't get this note or I don't understand this. So we didn't get any notes from anyone. And then we said we wanted to do a sketch show that was smarter and less traditional than some of the things we've been writing. Because we've been writing for, you know, oh, to make money, a Little and Large, um, Ken Dodd, all sorts. And not necessarily thinking they were brilliantly funny, but trying to work out what was right for them and then writing it. So in that sense, from an early age, we wrote for our performers. Right. So you go off, and, 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 and that's, I think now, I don't think that's given as much importance as it should be, because the script is always, oh, we'll do a read-through, or we'll do this, or we'll do that. It's only when you cast it and then allow the writers then to write for who, who are performing it that I think the thing takes off, which is why sometimes comedy series doesn't work in the first series or, or so, and it's because the writers aren't writing for the cast yet. Well, I've been, so I, I, was, I was reading an interview with uh, the Inside Number 9 creators, uh, Stephen yeah. um, Reese, and they said that they try not to write for, a sp- so they try not to write with a person in mind, mm-hmm. because when you do that, if you don't get them, you feel really disappointed. Right. So I, I presume that what you're saying is, you're, you, when you're writing the original script, you're not writing at the time when this isn't made at this point. You're not writing with someone in mind as a, you know, that, they'll play that well, part. Well, actually, funnily enough, Christopher Lloyd was who, who was Reverend Jim in Taxi and was uh, the, my professor in uh, Back to the Future. Yes. Was who we, amazing. <laughs> who we wrote Lister for. Really? Yeah, so completely, so out there. It's oh, he would have been good. Though. Yeah. So it Although, was someone 
yeah. sort of Reverend Jim taxi type whose brain was slightly fried. Yeah. So you could see why he was at the very bottom of the rung on the ship. And yeah. you could see Rimmer bossing him about being the way he was. It was a terrible indictment of, of what Rimmer must have done in his life to be only over this idiot. So that's sort of how it started. Was that a, uh, uh, who was the other guy? I assume it wouldn't be um, Marty McFly. Him as no, no, as, as so it was, it was <laughs> and I, Rob may not even have had the same voice in his head, but that was a voice I had, and okay. that was certainly what we spoke about. Then when we came to cast it, of course we were casting English people. Uh, and there was Hugo, of David, Hugo David, I can't remember, he was in a, a young teen show about delinquents, I've forgotten his name. And we saw him because he was very good at playing someone with who wasn't exactly sharp. Right. And then we saw other people as well. <laughs> Again, typecast. Alan Rickman, um, Hugh Laurie, um, all sorts. And Paul Jackson was worried that the script might be racist because if the cat were black, he didn't know whether that was a black stereotype. Okay. Okay, yeah. We felt a bit like that too. Well, no, no, I'm... Sorry. Yeah, no, you can see how you do it. It depends how it's done. For, for the yeah. benefit of the listeners, yeah, yeah. And also, this is, this is this <laughs> yeah. is a PC, very, you know, and we were going, hang on, it's just a funny part, isn't it? It doesn't matter whether he's black, green or blue. But anyway, um, Paul didn't tell us at the time, but he was working with Craig Charles, and he said, who was an angry poet on Saturday Live on right. Channel 4, Give this a read. Tell me whether you think it's racist. And, and Craig, at this point, isn't an actor. And he right. goes, he read it. He went, no, it's not racist because it's not racist. I think it's really funny. Can I play the part of Lister? And Paul went, no, we, we, we want actors. We want proper actors. Um, <laughs> the Sorry, right, I'm just imagine yeah, his yeah, face yeah, going, yeah, I've got an yeah, angry poem yeah, about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all the, we, the, the writers have been quite clear about that, and we had. Yeah. We want actors, proper yeah. actors. So we can be a bit like Steptoe and Son. Because you, because you'd followed in. That yeah, because you followed yeah, that yeah. thing, and he was the finest actor of, of his generation. So that was the. And then he went, just let me audition. What's the, you know, how bad can it be? And then again, he said no. And then I think Craig said it was the third time he went look, because I think he said how's auditions going? Oh, we can't find anybody. It's not working. They're driving me mad because they're not accepting anyone. So all right, let me let me try and let me try. So he came in. And there was no one close to him. There was absolutely no one close to him. It wasn't even a competition. He came in, he had the charm, he had the warmth, and he fulfilled basically the, the character needs that we wanted the story to, to, to follow. So you have a plan. Yeah. And then, but, the, but you're in a great situation of being able to bend it and work it and go, oh, right, okay. And, and then you start to think of the benefits. You've got this diverse cast. We hadn't thought about diversity. Um, and part of the plan was we obviously were hugely influenced by the original classic Star Treks. And we really loved that idea of that multi-ethnic crew, which was very daring at the time, having a Russian in an American ship because at the time there was the Cold War and the exit. And then you had, you know, all the different cast members and... Um, Uhuru and all that, it was a really interesting mix. And so that was one of the things we, we went for. And the, all the comedies at the time were either all white or they made an issue of being 
a black family living next to a white family and it was always about colour and race and bleh, all that. And we thought, here's an opportunity to, if you, if you can, if you can cast it, you know, in a different way, to, to, um, to do something different. But then that wasn't the reason Craig got it. Obviously, it was <laughs> completely invisible, that, that part. It was just, oh, oh my God, he's, 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 he's perfect for, for what we're looking for. I mean, now, so for example, you were with the BBC for the first run of these, and, yeah. and now you've moved to Dave. Yeah. And now the BBC have a lot more uh, pressure on diversity and pressure yeah. on quotes and things. Yeah. Do, do you find that that carried on through, or, like, or was that ever a thing, or was that just in casting, that's just how that went? It's a really interesting story. I won't say who the guy's name is. <laughs> okay. But he's black right. and very, very famous. And he was talking to the director at the time, Ed Bai, about how there wasn't enough diversity on television. This was probably early 90s, uh, 91, something like that. And he said, and it's down to people like you, Ed, to, when you make a show, have diverse casts. And Ed went, yeah, I totally agree about that, but also I'm kind of doing it, aren't I, with Red Wolf. And the very famous black person paused and went, oh my God, yeah, you're right. I've never actually seen them as being black. Okay. And it was invisible because they didn't talk about it. Mm. And I thought, that's really fascinating. Mm. You know, because this isn't a white person. You know, uh, very few shows at the time with black people in Japan. Mm. But Red Dwarf was on in Japan. And you think, is that because they're invisible? I mm. don't know. Or is it a, a better than that in that, you know, we don't. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I don't have that nonsense anymore. I don't, yeah, when I'm watching it, I don't see the race element. I don't, no, because, no, to go anyway, no, no, yeah. no, no, sure, yeah. sure. But it's because it was quite unusual at the time because they weren't talking about it. They mm. were just people. Mm. And the cast, the, the boys, Danny and, and Craig, were very supportive of that. Mm. You know, just get on with it. Yeah. We're just people, for Christ's sake, you know. We're actors. We're yeah, well, we're, yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, 
it became quite an interesting, you know, just an extra thing, I guess. So the, so the second round, if you like, of, of Red Dwarf mm. came out of them asking you if you want to do a, a, a sort of talking heads, remember this scene type thing, and you saying, actually, why don't we make some more? And they went, we don't really do this. Because yeah, uh, Dave weren't... We, we don't, really no one commissioned, they didn't commission written, um, scripted comedy at the time. Right. And no one did remakes. Mm-hmm. No one in the world did remakes at the time. Uh, in that, you know, let's bring this whole show back because it might be a hit. Now it's bizarre because mm. so many are doing it. Yeah, it's like reliving my childhood but with new scripts. Uh, absolutely, yeah. and they're doing it in America now as well, so it's, re- it's really interesting. Mm. Murphy Brown they're doing now, all sorts, but anyway. So I said, why don't we, because I'd spent a lot of time researching on what we were going to do for the Red Wolf movie, um, do something, and I've got a lot of really good people, I've got great VisFX people, and I know the budget isn't very good, but maybe we could do some kind of deal. And I persuaded Mike Seymour, who ran his own VisFX uh, school, an Australian admit when I was out there, and said, would he come and help? And he built all sorts of CG sets and did all sorts of stuff for just the ability to be able to use what he filmed in his uh, uh, VisFX university. So we got this incredible look for very, very little money. And so we were able, I mean, I think we had three real sets in all, in these three-part specials. We couldn't afford an audience. There were so many things we couldn't afford, although bizarrely it looked really expensive. But it was so cheap. But that would have been the moving on the technology because it's you know it's like if you bought a camera thirty years ago, yeah. you know a, a sort of yeah. old school camera would yeah. have been rubbish. Whereas yeah. now you can buy for Much a quarter of that yeah, price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were able to do way more, and then when that went out, um, it, it the view figures were. You know, in fact, the CEO at the time said, can you check the ratings? Because I think the decimal point might be in the wrong place. <laughs> and it was 2.6 million. And he was worried. He was expecting 260,000. And then uh, they went, oh, can we have some more? And then I was able to say, okay, but I'd like them to be 30 minutes, not 23. And I'd like this to be an audience. And I'd like this to be, you know, more of a budget, please. Uh, and so that's, that's how we got kind of revived. So you were... You were in quite a powerful position at that point because because the cult following that had sustained. I mean, did you know about all the sort of fan meetups and how how on Twitter and Facebook were you looking at? Oh, we we there'd been fan conventions since the nineties every year, so we knew all about that. And the last time we did a TV series, can you hear a bing? Was that just yeah, no. I, I don't Is know that? where it's coming from, but I can just hear a bing every ten seconds. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad it's not just me getting to No, surely. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably it's the final time to get Where it. is everyone? Yeah. I was telling Ben before I came in, I've lost my voice three times in the last week, so I was really worried that I'm going to lose it oh, as right, I walk in the door. To, uh, so, tinnitus be, yeah. and a no voice. This is going <laughs> to be a fun bad. podcast yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, and last time out we got 8 million. So we'd never, we never failed. We'd, and we went back to the BBC and said, can we... They had originally offered us, I think it was a million pounds for the TV, for the movie rights. And then we got the money and it was dependent on the movie, on the, us being able to sell the TV rights. So we went, oh, this is a piece of cake. Went back to the BBC and said, can we have that million pounds now as part of the deal? And they went, 
we're no longer interested in the audience that Red Wolf formerly used to attract. Okay. So no, you can't. Well, uh, what what did they sh- see that audience as? Sorry. What, well, what? I, don't, I don't know. Black t-shirt wearing culty mad people. I have no idea. They never said. Okay. But also, it doesn't mean that these people have retired from watching television. And also, the, the, the depth of the Red Wolf audience has always been huge because it's always been little kids, tiny, you know, seven-year-old kids all the way up to people in their 80s. So, so mo- the move to Dave was quite organic because the BBC had kind of said no. Well, the, the, it's said no, and then Dave, which was... Um, or UK TV, which was a repeat channel, had repeated all the Red Dwarfs and they'd got incredibly good figures, far and above anything else that, that was on the channel. You know, the more famous mm. classic shows, Red Dwarf beat the pants off everything. Mm. And they suddenly thought, actually, maybe we could we'd do something contemporary with this. Why well, don't we get the guys back in costume and get them to introduce some of the clips? And it went from there. Right. And were there any, like, it, it sounds like you were in quite, a, like I said, a powerful position. So I assume, given that you're their kind of first, um, would that be fair to say, their, their kind of first foray into making original scripted content? Yes. Were there any, like, them going, we, we want to put these parameters on it? Or was it literally like, we know people are going to watch this, go mad? For the most part, because it was a repeat channel, they're not program makers. Mm. And the first to admit they're not, or at the time they were the first to admit they're not program makers. And it was sort of like, look, we're not going to tell you how to make Red Dwarf because you've been making it, you know, since 1988. So you just make Red Dwarf. Of course, I would say, look, we've never made it in this way. I'm, I'm making it now because we can't afford the conventional way. But I'll give you something that looks amazing. And so they just won't get on with it. And there was. Um so, so this whole new batch of Red Dwarf, you've yeah. essentially written solo with yeah. help from other writers. Yeah, and, yeah, and just, yeah, it's just me, yeah. Yeah, and when you first started out, obviously you were in a writing partnership. With Rob, yeah. Yeah, that kind of split. Yeah. And you, you okay to talk about wh- yeah. wh- what happened there? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he decided he wanted to write on his own. Right. In fact, the first time he decided he wanted to write his own, on his own was before we'd even written the first series of Red Dwarf. Okay. So we got the commission, and then he had a bad summer, and, and went, I want to write my own stuff. No, actually, that's not quite right. We'd rehearsed it, the first series, and the electrician's strike had made it impossible for us to shoot anything. The show was then delayed for a year, and at that point, he said, I want to write on my own. And I said, but we've had the benefit of seeing this show rehearsed we should be rewriting the pants off it and we should certainly be dropping one show and possibly two because we've seen what's working and what's not working. But anyway, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to go his own way. And then it was only right towards the end of that summer he changed his mind and went, okay, let's, let's drop one show and rewrite the others. And then I can't remember when. There were two other, three other points, I think, when he wanted to go his own way. And the second time we got back together, because Spitting Image got in touch with me and said, look, we want you to produce the show, but on your own. And I went back to Rob and said, look, if I take this and you change your mind again, I won't be coming back because we'll go off on different career paths. I'm happy not to take it, providing we write together, because, you know, I felt writing in a twosome is by far, and I'm right, is by far the easiest thing to do. Writing on your own is much harder. Let me tell you. Yeah. No question. 
uh, you have more fun, you have more laughs, it's half the money, but who cares? And so he then went, okay, well, if you're going to do Spitting Image by yourself, I'd rather, yeah, okay, fine. So we then go back together again and wrote a few more series. <coughs> and then the last time was we were doing a show for Carlton Television called The Ten Percenters. And uh, he wanted to do his own scripts. Um, so I had no choice uh, but to write mine. And then he left the production. Uh, and I then inherited having to write four scripts in four weeks, which is a great way to discover whether you can write on your own, let me tell you. Yeah, especially when there's a yeah. deadline and a pressure. Oh, and, yeah. yeah, we were in production. We are yeah. in pre-production. Yeah, that was just terrifying. So, uh, and... Uh, I, I, so putting myself in your shoes in that position, I, I can't imagine the level of anxiety or, or mm. panic that you would be going through. I think you probably can. Uh, well, no, I, not, uh, I can empathise, <laughs> but I think there's, there's a certain... Barrier. We just moved into a house. What, you and, uh, you it, was just, it was just a new house. No, no, my, my, oh. my wife and I. Oh, I was well, like, so, sorry, sorry. if you no, no. together as well. <laughs> no, no, we <laughs> no, so we just moved into this new house, and I bought a load of DVD bookshelves from, I think it's Ikea, because I had quite a lot of DVDs and every time the anxiety got too much I thought because oh, I, can't, I can't write I can't make the scene work I thought I'll build a DVD bookcase because I can do that and know how to do that <laughs> it's yeah. like nails and you bang them in and the thing and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. And at the end of those three four weeks I had I think I bought extra just so I could keep building them I had 12 <laughs> DVD bookshelves yeah. so the whole entire room my writing room was just you could hardly walk into it because through DVD bookshelves. Um, so it was basically through building DVD bookshelves that got through it. So you, so your anxiety, a coping mechanism, this is at the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I've yeah, I've got over it now. I'm all right now. Uh, oh, so you've but got different at, methods at, now. At, yeah, at the time it was building DVD bookshelves. Yeah. And okay, so when you look back on series, so it was series seven, wasn't it? The one where you started writing. That the, was series seven. Yeah. So when you look back on the last four of its series seven, can you see a difference in those as to when you were writing as a partnership? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, series seven, Ed came back to direct and, and Ed didn't want the audience. He wanted to do it all single camera as sort of practice for the film. And he also argued... And, you know, I, I bought the argument at the time, which was, it will look better, the lighting will be better, because you'll be able to light it short for short. But, yeah. and you don't really know it until it's too late, a spark went out of the cast because they didn't have that live audience. And they're the first to admit they kind of are live performers and show-offs, and they gain an extra energy and an extra funniness, almost, by performing it and the great thing about an audience is an audience tells you when it's funny um, because it's not true to say you know all these uh, audience shows are dubbed and you know there are no real laughs in Red Wolf there are real laughs they tell you when it's funny and they also tell you when they're not laughing um, when it's not funny and unless it's supposed to be not funny or dramatic or whatever mm. so they're an enormous help and also because there was quite a bit of green screen in it they did kind of lose the will to live because green screen, you know, was yeah. quite new, at, you know, in television at the time. And it was like, what am I supposed to be doing? What am I looking at? But there's mm -hmm. nothing here. How do I act? What am I acting off? So that was very difficult. And also at the time, Chris Barry was uh, being very successful in Britis. 
and wasn't available to do more than I think two or three shows and I didn't want to replace him because I thought he was persuadable to come back <laughs> uh, I thought he'll, he'll do it one more season of Britis and then if Red Wolf is successful I think he'll want to come back and so we all had a new character in uh, played by Chloe Annette Kuchansky because Charles Armitage who was at that point a director of Grant Naylor but not a producer um, said if you're doing a film uh, there should be a, a, a woman's part in it um, and <laughs> cast someone attractive um, so Seven was and also at the time and it's interesting just to, I didn't feel confident enough to go I want to write this on my own because I felt not that I didn't think I could do it but that I thought people would think, oh, God, you're really big-headed. <laughs> and just, oh, you think you can do it all on your own, do you? you just just because you've any. done a thing, yeah, you don't need anyone. Just bloody hell. And I thought, oh, no, that's, I don't want people to think. That. So that was, your impo- was that kind of your imposter syndrome sinking in, or was that just your neuroses of... I suppose it was... Because um, at this point, social media is a thing, so I'm assuming you're getting no, quite it wasn't, of, No, it no? wasn't social media because we were really not aware... I mean, I remember in one of the science fiction magazines going up, oh, guys, you must have been really affected by everyone saying how terrible the first two series were, you know, because the science fiction world absolutely hated it. And we were going, no, we didn't have a clue about that. <laughs> but no thanks clue. for telling us. Yeah, yeah, so, didn't they like it? Oh, no, they like it now, but they hated it then. Oh, wow. right. You know, so it would be only by reading the science fiction magazines. And I remember reading, what was it, Starburst, of a review on a sh- first show... Oh, the first, uh, no, sorry, series three, going, what's happened to Red Wolf? It used to be so funny, and now it's absolutely terrible. It's just not funny anymore. I mean, just think it was, Marooned isn't funny, Backwards isn't funny, Polymorph isn't funny. Uh, and that was the, uh, but it was only just like, oh, this guy's mad, and so you just wouldn't take any notice. I mean, it's a completely different world now, as we know. Yeah. So it wasn't anything to do with Seven at all, in, in terms of social media or anything like that. It was just me going, I don't want people to think you know because you, you kind of have to fail a little bit so if seven had gone absolutely gangbusters and everyone gone this is brilliant i would have shut up and done my two shows and we would have carried on but it, it wasn't i didn't think and i thought actually i can write a better script than that and i can you know whatever whatever and um and maybe the whole thing needs completely changing and a whole different environment to get a new energy to it it sounds like you've had an amazing run with the first sort of six, s- six seven, yeah. no, eight series of, of Red right. Dwarf. Yeah, the first sort of chunk. You've then brought it back, and obviously the, the numbers were massive, so they've wanted to do a whole yeah. series. And, and, now, and now you're sort of worried about the inevitable, well, not the inevitable, but like most people go, you know, like you said, you've got to learn from a failure. And you sort of, you sort of probably, there's probably episodes where, and I'm not going to ask you what your mm. least favourite episode mm. is or anything like that, mm. but like, you know, there's got to be episodes where you go, we could probably write that better now if we were retackling that episode or if we were revisiting that idea. So I'm assuming that this was the point where you were going, oh God, when, when is that fall going to hit? And is it? Well, the thing is, often some of the weaker episodes were when, oh, we've run out of money and the script that's written by another writer that's not you, Doug, is impossible to shoot. So you need to come up with a new script over the weekend. Right. Will you do it? Well, you actually, you have to do it. Because because we haven't got a script that we can shoot, and then you do it, and then I remember doing it, coming in, cast read it, 
first and only time they applauded. <laughs> when, this is brilliant. <laughs> uh, but the fans didn't like it. But do you but, think that's... What, so, so the audience in the studio liked it? No, the cast applauded. Oh, right. The cast really liked it and applauded first right. and only time. <laughs> Which tells you something, don't believe them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you just uh, say the lines. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and I haven't watched it back since, actually, since um, the millions of times I watched it in the edit. It'd be interesting to watch. In, in terms of... So uh, I'm, I'm in a weird headspace at the moment where I'm trying to look for a writing partner. I've noticed, as you right. say, it's a lot better when I write with people than when I write on my own, partly because I can overthink things and make it too intellectual or make yeah. it too, like you said, factual or yeah. real, and then it just loses that element right. of it. Yeah. How did you work out when you were on your own writing what was funny on paper and what would be funny said out loud I felt I always knew and I always knew from when the time I started and it helped enormously and it was it's something that Craig and I used to laugh about where Craig would go that's not funny and I'd go yeah it is I'll get an enormous laugh and he would go no no one will get it and then I'd, (laughs) I'd be proved right and it's because I'd worked with audiences since I was about 23 I mean three, four hundred people at the Auburn in Hume where the BBC used to record all the radio shows. You know, that doesn't mean that that audience is every audience, but it made you very confident mm. of getting particular kind of huge laugh if you did certain things. And so I've always felt, you know, that'll get a laugh, that'll get a laugh, that'll get a laugh, and been quite confident about that. So that hasn't changed where you where where you lose some of the the absolute joy is if you're on your own you're not uh sitting there uh laughing your bollocks off uh, <laughs> at something even though it might be really funny mm. because that, that takes two somehow even if the other person's only repeating what you've just said that's funny mm. it's there's a special thing it, you, it's almost like there's a third person in the room Exactly. Yeah. It's sort of the what's the phrase? It's like the the sum of your parts are worth more than yeah. the yeah 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 yeah. So, and again, I mean yeah. this with great yeah, respect, yeah. but I'm wondering, you you'd had a lot of experience by that point in doing. Uh, well, this this is actually the first run of shows. You had a lot of experience in doing uh, stuff for British audiences and yeah. British radio, especially. Yeah. And then there was that talk of the American move, yes. where they sort of moved the script over and recast yeah. it, and then, yeah. and then that didn't work. Yeah. And then they brought you guys on board to, to kind of... Uh, I think they brought us guys on board more as a sort of token. Right. To, they really went, come over and tell us that, what a terrific job we're doing. Right. You know, it wasn't really, we're, we're really interested in your opinion. Right. Because it was already cast. Okay. A Lister was played by a, a very, very lovely guy, but very, very handsome white guy. Right. You know, the chemistry didn't work. And we didn't realize at the time, but the person who writes the pilot's worth an awful lot of money, even though he's doing a rewrite of your script. Yeah. Um, it's worth a fortune. And the cast didn't like it. And he was not writing for his new cast. So it didn't make sense. The handsome white guy couldn't get a date with the girl because he was, he was too uh, insecure. You think that doesn't work, mm. you know? There needs to be a better new reason than that because he's, you know, he was like the guy the, um, in Cheers. You know, he was a ladies' man. He looked like he was a ladies' man. So you've got to find another, mm. you know. But anyway, so that that wasn't really happening, and we were much more, you know, don't get if you've cast it, you've got to write your best script for your cast. Mm. Don't get, you know, too uh, hooked up on what we did. 
Um, we did stay up and we did our pass on it, mm. which was better. And the cast thought it was better, but somehow it didn't get shot. If you were to, because I'm imagining, and you know, it's your headspace, so I don't yeah. know. But I'm imagining that with a reboot, you don't think of it as you're starting the series again. You just feel like you're making the next one in the line. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, because the thing is, you can't duplicate something, and nearly all the stuff that's that's worked in America doesn't duplicate it. Mm. So The Office, I don't think. I don't think it worked, no. It, 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 but isn't a duplicate yeah. of, of the British office. Mm. They, you know, were influenced by it, and, you know, it's still the mockumentary, but then they get their own impetus, their own energy, and go off. And that's one of the reasons why it's been, you know, done well. Mm. Would you, if you had the option again, would you try again for America, or are you at the stage where you think, I, I have this audience in the UK, it's... it's a hardcore following and frankly it's what I want to work right for out of you know um, I don't want to leave the British uh, Red Wolf but equally just out of sheer um, <laughs> I'd love to be properly involved hmm. in an American version of course I would um, just to see um, because I think it could easily be successful but it's all about the casting do you think that because obviously, uh, I think it's Dave, Dave's global, isn't it? So like their on-demand can be played over there. And Britbox, yeah, Britbox. Yeah. They, they, um, do you know how well the numbers... I was going to ask, do you know how well the numbers do over there? Uh, Britbox, no, because it's, it's just started, didn't it? About was mm. it six months ago, so it's early days. Mm. Um, people have got to discover it. And unfortunately, um, Dave don't sell their shows to Netflix which is a, it's a great shame yeah. um, because that really would you know it would reach areas it, it isn't at the moment mm. and I was I was talking before about social media mm. and, and the impact on that on the show and, and yeah. uh, obviously there's there's tropes that come up with uh, social media where like people will you know tweet quotes from shows or they'll or they'll at you in and say oh I can't believe yeah. how funny that was yeah. do you ever watch the the stuff that's coming in on a show and sort of allow it to, to say, for example, there's a line or there's a, there's a thing that everyone seems to be loving. Do you ever sort of think, I'll just chuck that in in this episode or I'll have a line that, you know, we'll change that line so, so people get what they want or do you just always go the way you think will be the strongest? Oh, right. I've never, I've, I've never noticed that as a way to go. There are shows where you go, oh, my God, you really like that show. That's, and everyone really, really likes that show. Okay, that's 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 a surprise. Um, I'm not unhappy, but how much you like that shows a surprise. Mm. It's too late now. Yeah. Uh, we made it a year ago, but whatever. But in terms of oh, why don't you do more Donald Trump jokes, for example? Uh, no, we don't want to do Donald Trump jokes because it's too contemporary. Because blah blah blah. Mm. There's talk of, or there has been talk of for a long time about a live show. Yes. Um, it's just a question of finding out when and how many more series we're doing here and then we'll go off the back of one of those and possibly the back of, of 13 and do a live show after that. Have you, have you scripted it? Is it like a, a, or is it a case of you're like, let's just see how many, how many more series we do and then we'll try and incorporate as many of the best ones of that? No, I, 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 the, what they want me to do is to, to write a largely... To have a lot of new material in it while ingeniously incorporating some of the, the best bits. Mm. Um, 
they don't want it to be, oh, it's just greatest hits. Mm. Um, I'm not sure they're right, but um, <laughs> that's what's being asked for at the moment. So, no, it's not been, been, been written at the moment. I'm concentrating on, on the new series. <laughs> yeah, I'm not trying to... By the way, yeah. just yeah. get right Yeah, yeah get just right get right there. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all waiting. No, actually, um, to be fair, I did think of a scene from it. Uh, what was it? Was it yesterday or this morning? I can't remember. And I thought, oh, yeah, actually, that would be a good bit. While, while not thinking about it, I, I thought of something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes to you sometimes, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in terms of... You remember you were talking before about uh, bringing Kachansky in as, yeah. a, as, a, as a main yeah. character. Yeah. Do you... Was that a kind of, what's the word, uh, future-proofing move in case Rimmer, like the character of Rimmer needed to be written out because of that? No, because I, I deliberately didn't replace Rimmer right. with, with an archety- a similar archetype hmm. so he could come back. The Kachansky character kind of fell a little bit between two stools. I wanted her to be more like Chloe is in real life, and we never quite captured that. And and then Chris very soon changed his mind and wanted to come back, and so we then had this situation where we had all of them. Mm. And when you're when you're writing new ones, so obviously you've got a ten year gap. It's all yeah. it, you'd probably have to refresh your mind a little bit from yeah. episodes you've written. Well, having said that, I had in that period written so many drafts. It's untrue of the Red Dwarf movie, so they never really left me because. <laughs> I was told that the movie had to be substantially, have a substantial budget mm. for the money to be raised. Mm. It turned out to be absolutely wrong advice. but <laughs> So I was doing rewrites to make the movie more expensive. Mm. And it had to be over 20, 25 million. And then I was doing rewrites, not, not rewrites to make it better or funnier, but just for budget rewrites uh, to make it less. So, and then it went 21, I think 18, 15, 12, 10, 8, <coughs> and then uh, some of the people who were involved got sent to prison and I, I decided to give up. Yeah, that's probably a good, yeah. <laughs> good advice. It's a good stop point. Yeah. Well, no, I, I was going to sort of find out whether wh- when you were starting this up again or when, or when you were sort of trying to write for yeah. the new series, were there any uh, ways that you kept track of the characters as in like the world that they were in before and how they kept going? Like, do you have like a, a storyboard of each character or do you just have them so embedded in your mind yeah. that... Okay, fine. Just that. <laughs> no, ju- just that, yeah. Just picking up almost like it was yesterday. You know, it's a bit like when you've, you see an old friend and you mm. haven't seen him for ages and you're always really surprised how quickly you can pick up. It was a bit like that. It didn't really take much time at all just to go, okay, what's Lister doing? Is he sleeping in bed? And Crank comes in. All right, what's going to happen? Uh, what happens in their world? Right. You know, and then, oh, I'll just write it, see what happens. Mm. And that's... <clears throat> there are ways where you, I think there are two schools one is where plot everything out don't write it meticulously plan beat by beat scene by scene so everything's absolutely worked out um, or stick two characters together and write it and not know where you're going and Neil Simon is that second school uh, and it means sometimes more rewrites but what it means is you often have really good character stuff or big laughs because I've got this bit about this, and actually that bit will be a, a, a good thing, reason for him to do that. And also I get a lot of ideas if I'm obsessing about it. Um, when I wake up, my subconscious tells me what to do, hmm. which I, I haven't read that much of, but <clears throat> the older I get, the more convinced I am. I mean, it only works if you're obsessed. Hmm. You've got to be fully thinking of it. 
So you're actually, you dream it subconsciously and then often I'll get solutions to things. <coughs> so, so when you're sitting down to write an episode, yeah. what's your, is it just a case of you've just got ideas that you've been working on and you sort of put them together? Or is there like a room or a place that you sit? Have to always had, and it, it was exactly the same with Rob. <laughs> I would have a book or a pad or a whiteboard and I would write all the ideas on the board. And it'd be bits and pieces, not not connecting in any way. So it'd be, excuse me, about to yeah. cough. I was going to say, you move near the mic. Don't do that while you cough. Yeah. <laughs> Are you okay? <coughs> Are you okay? Do you need another drink? Or? Yeah, there's, there's <coughs> um, like, for example, Rimmer revives the officers club and fills it with Rimmers. Yeah. You know, as an idea. You just go, yeah, maybe, and just write it on board. And there'd be 60, 70, 80 of these things. And there would be little things, like Lister uh, gives a haircut uh, to a spring onion. Uh, and that's what he's doing in the sleepy quarters when someone comes in. Mm. You know, basically saying, you know, you've got, you know, nothing going on in your life that you're doing this, blah, blah, blah. You know, that would be, you know, a tiny or a joke or a one-liner, and it would just be full of this. Mm-hmm. And then you would look at it and go, right, what's the one I want to most write? And it might... Uh, so there was a thing I was really interested in, psychopaths and a cure for evil, and what the, the implications of a cure for evil would be. So what would Hitler be like if he was cured? How would you get on? How difficult would it be going on if he was absolutely adorable? And I thought, oh, that's a really interesting idea. <coughs> Equally and completely contradictory, I had an idea of they're going to the 1966 World Cup and something goes wrong with the time machine and they wind up on a submarine with Hitler going to Argentina after the end of World War II. The two ideas don't fit at all. <laughs> completely different. What happens if Hitler's being interrogated by a cat? Uh, um, don't know, how would he handle that? So that so it would be all these, and then of course you would knock out. You can't have three of these Hitler ones, but the mm-hmm. one that's most appealing is this cured one. Mm-hmm. What happens if there are other people who are cured? How would they come across them? Hang on, Hitler's dead. Blah 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 blah. And so it's it's the way I think we d- I did it with Rob, and the way I do it, it's, it's very it's, it's identical. You then get those things, and then start to trace out the the story, and then go in and write it. Mm. Okay. Okay. These are the last quick fire questions. Okay. Uh, quick for me. You take as long as you like. Okay. Okay. Um, <coughs> what are the best books on comedy writing or stand up you've ever read? Right. What's the one with the banana on it? You. Um, I know this. There's book. a guy. He's an American guy. They're all American guys. Um, <laughs> David Freeman's very good for making characters likable, not likable, but empathetic mm-hmm. so undeserved, undeserved misfortune Save uh, the Cat is that the book no it's not oh, Save no. the Cat okay. that's more a structure book ok I've just read it's, that book it's really um, Save the Cat's good but the, the books I'm talking about are more this is how to do funny this is so or, or to, to make empathetic characters it's funny though starting out there, were, there, were, there was one book which was what was it called? It was writing for television. And it basically said, if you create a character, you have to choose a characteristic and then repeat that characteristic three times. Uh, and then people know that person is shy. Mm. 
And it's like, oh, okay. And it was so unsophisticated mm. in terms of, you know, where we are now. There are so many great books. I mean, I've read most of them. Oh, that's really annoying. I can't think of that guy's name. I can get back to you, but that's probably not very helpful. We could stop and I could find out. Well, uh, I, I will Google it because we don't want to okay, out of time and get kicked okay. out of the room. Um, but I think I know the one you're talking about because I remember see, it's just a white cover with a banana on it. Is that right? Cause uh, I, think I, I think that's right. Unless um, I think it's been recommended before. That's why I think I know it. Right, okay. It's an American guy. You know, the Trubies and, uh, and the um, Robert McKees and all that. I mean, Robert McKee, great, but I just think he scares the living shit out of most people. Like, you'll never do it. It's really super hard. Mm. And that is not helpful in, mm. in some, in, in, from, from starting out. Mm. Makes it too hard. Okay. Um. The Golden Simpson, stick to your characters. <coughs> Walk him down the street, make, make sure that they're in conflict. Mm. And then get to know them. Mm. Yeah, very, very simple advice, but I think it's good advice. What is the biggest mistake you've ever made and how did you overcome it? Smoking. It took me a long time, but I gave up. Else it wouldn't be coffee now. <clears throat> oh, God, biggest mistake. Wow. You know now I have to leave in all the coughs, right? Yeah, yeah, of course, because it won't work. The yeah, gag yeah. won't pay off yeah. without that. Um, Wow, um, probably taking so long to write on my own. And in fact, I would never have written on my own if Rob hadn't wanted to go off and do his own thing. And not that we didn't do some great shows together, but I wonder if my life would have been much easier if I had just written my own stuff. Who's to say? Who's to know, rather? So who is the most underrated person in the behind-the-scenes element of TV? <clears throat> oh, God, there are so many. If you've got a great creative producer, they can make or break you. If you've got a really good person who's looking after the budget, they can make or break you. Equally, if you don't have a good cast, you're screwed. If you don't have good scripts, you've got to have an amazing cast or else you're screwed. But if you're saying, what do I think is the secret of great comedy which you know I accept that that you've got to have energy in the writing and energy in the performance and energy and enthusiasm in the production and two and this won't be popular I believe that all the best comedy shows almost without exception have a showrunner um, and the showrunner is the one creative in control of the show doesn't mean that they can't you know, it doesn't mean they have to write every show. It doesn't mean they have to direct every show or even direct at all. But it works in America so successfully. And I think if you look at our most successful and great comedy shows, it's, it's got a showrunner. And, you know, John Cleese on 40 Towers, Larry David on Curb, uh, Ricky Gervais in The Office uh, with uh, Stephen Merchant. <clears throat> and it, it comes a Galton and Simpson, even though they didn't direct it, what they said, all that came from that that source. I agree with that, but yeah. yeah. What do you think is the biggest problem in the TV industry, and how would you go about solving it? Yeah, that's the problem. I think I think it's very difficult to make. I think there's something fundamentally wrong at the moment that funny scripts don't get made because there aren't enough funny scripts on television, 
And we've now got this new thing where comedy shows and comedy awards are being given to scripts which, for the most part, aren't even trying to be funny. And I think there is a duty, if you've got a comedy show on, to be funny, to really try and be funny, because the world needs it. And I think too often uh, people go, oh, it's not original enough, or oh, it's not this, or oh, we've got one of these. You know, they don't say that with drama. Sorry, you can't do a hospital thing. We've already, we've done hospitals. Oh, really? Oh, so you don't want another one. Oh, we've done uh, murders and detectives and paedophiles. Oh, we don't want any more of those. They don't do that. But with comedy, it's like, oh, you can't have two in the same genre. You can if they're both funny. And I think if, if a script is genuinely funny, then it should never be turned down. They are and I'm talking about mine, they are turned down, and it's not like the people are even brought in to go, we want to help you and and show you how you can get something on TV. It's sort of like, next. So I don't think there's any proper mentoring thing there. And I think um, it's ironic that we've got so many channels, but in some ways, the comedy shows back in the day, I'm not talking about my day, but the day before, where writers were just, allowed to get on with it, the Eddie Brabans, the Golden Simpsons, the Dick Clement and even Lafrenet's, mm. you know, with very little uh, interference and it was very successful. Mm. Definitely. I, I think my only response to that would be there's a lot more people trying to do it now and there's a lot more people who aren't very good at it now. So there has to be a bit more refining, but I agree with you about... I, I, there will always be not pe- people not very good at it and that's yeah. partly because generally most people aren't very good at it when they start you know because where do you go where do you learn you can only you only get better at anything by doing it Mm. uh but two uh i think if when people are going this is a very funny script Mm. you know and it's not one network it's multiple networks are saying it's a very funny script and then that person isn't brought in and encouraged to to develop things i think there's something fundamentally wrong there Mm. I mean, it used to be BBC in the old days. I'm not sure whether that's the case anymore. I hope it is. So, yeah, that's, that's I think. And it's down to commissioners as well. And we do have the bizarre situation where a lot of people making decisions aren't writers or directors and their credits uh, on programmes like executive producer. And I gave my opinion halfway through. Yeah, 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 yeah. When no one, and and then no one took any notice. Yeah, I'd always, I always wondered whether, because I know TV credits are becoming a, a different thing now that you know they sort of get pushed to the bottom of yeah, the screen. And yeah, stuff. I always wondered whether there's worth sort of having them in an, or even having a thing next to them saying this TV executive did this underneath what they actually did or like they did this edit they did this just, just so yeah, that yeah. you know because uh, I was talking to Andrew Ellard who obviously you yeah. know very well and yeah. he was saying that you know some shows he worked on or like some episodes not, not with Red Dwarf but yeah. other shows he'd be in there he'd do a script edit they'd take none of his notes and he'd get a credit and he was like what have I done? Like, yeah, I haven't done anything. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I have done something, but it's just no, I haven't done. But yeah, 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 yeah. And and he gets the credit for good or bad. Yeah, you know, so it could be a rubbish show. They've totally ignored these notes. Exactly. Uh, but he still gets the credit and equally. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I suppose it's easy to to accept that if the show's really good. And yeah, they, <laughs> <laughs> I definitely keep quiet. If I was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, last question. Yeah. If you had one bit of advice for someone starting out writing. Yeah. It, based on all your knowledge of the industry as well as yeah. writing and partner writing on your own work kind of stuff yeah. what would you say to someone? 
it's not original, but if you're a writer, you've got to write and you've got to keep writing and basically wear the bastards down <laughs> by finishing scripts. By bastards, you mean like Ian and like the commissioners and stuff? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because they're, 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 they're the things stopping you getting it on TV. But you've got to keep writing and you've got to keep sending it in or get an agent to send it in. Mm. Ideally, an agent to send it in. Um, because you'll never get better if you don't keep doing it. Uh, and you'll never get anything on. And it's no good half writing something and not finishing it. Mm. And equally, it's no good finishing it and not showing it to anyone mm. or any of the right people. Mm. Well, thank you very much for okay. coming on. Not yeah. at all. Okay. That was Doug. I loved hearing how much detail and attention goes into the show and how he weighs up the whole adage of funny because it's true against whether it's just worth being funny and whether it's worth even sticking to the parameters of what technology can do. Um, in a sci-fi sitcom, I think that's more prevalent and, and especially the rate that the technology is evolving these days. I think it's really interesting how he's had to evolve that and move that around and work around different parameters as well as his knowledge about how and why shows get made and why others don't. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also enjoy the episode I did with Peep Show writer Sam Bain. We talked about how it was writing a hit show and what it was like stopping after 10 years and now writing a live theatre production rather than a TV show. Or you might enjoy my episode with comedian Richard Herring, who has built up his own online audience through podcasting that has enabled him to create shows and sitcoms that he wants to make, avoiding the TV industry altogether. Once again, I want to do a big shout out and thank you to Ben Duncan, Ian Coyle, Jen Pinkley and all of my friends at Dave TV who help out the podcast and have been immeasurably supportive of me and of the show over the last few years so thank you very much for helping me out get dug on and also give me a place to record it in central london which is increasingly hard to do if you're new here please do remember to hit the subscribe button if you're old here please do remember to give us an honest ideally positive review in itunes and either way please do consider giving us a donation you can either do this on paypal via my website which is simonkane.co.uk or on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash RC Industry Podcast, from $1 an episode. Did you think this was worth a dollar? 80p? Did you think it was worth that? Do you think this series is worth supporting? If you do, please do consider joining. I know a lot of you are broke. It's just after Edinburgh. We're still trying to recoup the losses. I get it. But if you can support the show, it would really mean a lot to me. I really want to get up to $100 a podcast, which is not a lot to ask given the audience numbers I get on this download. But if you're sitting there thinking, well, other people will do it, they're not. So if you would like to support the show and you'd like to see it continue, please, please, please consider going to either of those places and supporting the show in some way. The Ask the Industry podcast is a fruit that got in gravity's way production for the internet. All elements were created by me, comedian Simon Kane. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for subscribing. And thank you very much for rating and donating if you do. I'll see you all in about 14 days time. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.